Well, it's uh, really, really good to be with you here this morning. And, uh, uh, you know, I love Church of the Incarnation. And so I, I now work in Cambridge in the UK. But when people ask me, uh, what is my best example of a contemporary Anglican church, I refer to you. So no pressures, but... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, of course, it's a real delight to be back with Aubrey, who is so extraordinarily talented. And then during this year, I had the wonderful privilege of getting to know Drew. So, Drew, it's, it's great to see you. But, you know, to each one of you, it's, uh, you, you are the people of God. And so each one of you is special. Now, the really dreadful thing that Aubrey has done to me, and he has a habit of this, is to give me this passage <laughs> to preach on when I'm jet-lagged and have just arrived. So uh, I've hurt uh, the, the sole of my foot recently, so I won't be able to run very fast after the sermon, <laughs> but I'll do my best if you chase me. So just uh, to preface this, I do love America. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the good news or the bad news, depending on your view, is that Jesus trumps, uh, sorry, uh, you know, uh, Jesus trumps America. But I, I do, there's a, there's a tremendous sense of vitality when I come into the United States, and I love your country. I'm actually African. I grew up in South Africa. I've lived around the world, but I really do love America. And so th this is a very, very hard sermon to preach, and some of you really won't like me afterwards, but that's okay. So if you want a title for this, my preaching of this parable, I've called it Escaping the Iron Cage. And the, the sociologist Max Weber, who was very pro the modern world in which he lived, nevertheless predicted that modernity would become like an iron cage that would restrict us and from which we would be unable to really escape. And in my opinion, uh, when God's good gifts are distorted and they become our gods rather than our servants, then they trap us in iron cages. Now, this parable is a Western one and increasingly a global parable if ever there was one. Did you listen to the story? I hope so. An already rich landowner becomes uber wealthy through his lands yielding an abundant harvest. What to do with it all? Well, he was American. So the answer was quite simple. Bigger is better. Okay. Down come the old barns and up go the latest style bigger ones. Massive insurance policies are now in place, and our rich man can now live the life he so desires. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, and you need to translate that into a contemporary idiom, party time, in the most hedonistic fashion that is now available in the U.S. and Europe and all around the world. Now, we don't know how this man became wealthy, but in order to own large farmlands, he would indeed have had to have been very wealthy in what was largely a peasant subsistence economy. 
Agriculture, as you know, is vulnerable to the elements. But this man was fortunate to experience abundant harvests and so moved from being rich to being set for life. Now, I have no doubt that in our increasingly biblically illiterate culture, and I speak here of Britain and Europe and the millennials, we have generations arising now who have no conception or knowledge of the biblical story. And I've got no doubt that in our increasingly biblically illiterate culture, if this story was told, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of our fellow Americans, Brits, and Europeans would be cheering wildly. Here is a true hero. Here is a man living the American dream. If only I could be him. Is there a manual he has written so that I too can become like him? Perhaps he has founded a university I can attend. Now, okay, you're picking up all the illusions, so, you know, there we go. But uh, the sting in the tail is that I want to now hold up two mirrors to you. And the sting in the tail is this. I haven't come here today to preach to you about American politics, although I'm happy to do it if you want me to. But, uh, you know, we have our own problems in Britain. We can't leave Europe. <laughs> so, and uh, so, it, you know, it's no use throwing stones and glass uh, houses. But I want to hold up two mirrors, and the problem with these mirrors is the sting in the tail is not so much Donald Trump, it's you and me. So I want to hold up two mirrors. America is the home of consumer capitalism, and it has exported it around the world. Consumer capitalism makes greed a virtue. A rich man would be one of its heroes. Since World War II, which is now a very distant memory, especially for millennials, the West has experienced unprecedented peace and a rising standard of living, although that may be changing now. During the 20th century, the worldviews undergirding Western capitalism and constraining it to an extent were severely mauled. If you want the word for that, which I'll speak about on Tuesday, it's postmodernism. So that now in the 21st century, we are left with a kind of free-floating capitalism without moral constraints. This is a dangerous situation. And in 2008, American greed and British greed and greed around the globe, but in particular American greed, because you are the superpower, nearly broke the United States and the world economy. And now, apparently, you are experiencing good things in your economy. In Britain, we are still talking about emerging from austerity. And the number of people living in poverty in Britain has increased dramatically. And it all goes right back to the near collapse of the U.S. economy in 2007-2008, motivated entirely by greed. And if I'm right, neither in Britain nor in America did anyone go to jail for that greed. And you may well remember under George W. Bush that we were told the lie of lies, that this is only a blip. What is the response to the near uh, collapse of the world economy? Get out and spend. 
and then we will get our consumer economy back on track. Now here's my first mirror. There is a saying that we get the leaders we deserve. In the book of Judges, as you will recall, do you remember the story of the book of Judges? Do you remember the cycle? You know, they, they become like the other nations. God hands them over to the oppression of the other nations. Then they cry out to God. Then God raises up to a judge to deliver them. And then we discover second verse, exactly the same as the first. You know, God's people, so the cycle continues. Okay? But one of the very important things to note in the book of Judges, it's not just cyclical, it's also a spiral down. And do you know how you detect that spiral down? As the spiral down to starts taking place, the judges become weirder and weirder. <laughs> and they start to become a mirror image of Israel herself. Until you hit Samson, okay, who is truly bizarre. But do you know why he's truly bizarre? Because Israel herself has become truly bizarre. So there is some truth. This is a proverb. It's not entirely true that you get the leaders you deserve. But it's always, if something very weird is going on with your leadership, you need to be aware of that weirdness. But here's the killer point, especially as Christians. We need to ask, what does it teach us about ourselves. Now, as I said, I'm not here to advise you on American politics, but there is some truth in the fact that we get the leaders we deserve, and so we should have a close look at the leader we now have in America, the first billionaire U.S. president, Donald Trump. Vanity Fair reported that when Trump was assembling his cabinet last winter, a certain criteria for his nominees emerged. No, not years of experience that would equip them with the knowledge necessary to run the departments atop which they would be installed, and certainly not a belief in the mission of the agency they were to lead. Rather, and this is Vanity Fair, what Trump was looking for were people who were filthy, stinking, rich, Indeed, in some cases, it appeared that being rich was the only prerequisite for the gig. In December, he defended his hiring practices by saying in an Iowa thank you speech, I want people that made a fortune. My point is that like Samson, Trump mirrors what our culture has become, a culture of excessive opulence and greed, with wealth, wealth topping the list of virtues. And it appears for the highest political offices, irrespective of how that wealth was made. Now, just be aware, I could give you uh, worse examples from the presidency of Jacob Zuma in South Africa, where I come from, where we went through a thing called, which you wouldn't believe it, unless you, you, you saw that it actually happened, called state capture in which the entire state apparatus and cabinet positions were available to the highest bidder. So, you know, but the point is you're Americans, okay, and you are the leaders of the free world, and you remain at this stage, although I think that is changing the superpower. And the question is, you know, if this is the way your leaders are being appointed, 
Does it tell you anything about what it means to be American and what your calling as Christians might be? Trump's criterion for his choices is instructive. In a consumer culture, what happens is that legitimate market values, I'm all for healthy capitalism, healthy exchange of goods in the marketplace. But in a consumer culture, those become distorted. They overflow to capture every area of life so that everything becomes a product from which profit can and should be made, including the highest office in the land. Think, for example, of the exquisite and pure gift of sexuality turned into the global pornography industry by means of the internet. Which country in the world do you think produces most of that pornography? It's the one I'm standing in today. I quote, When it comes to the production and selling of pure, unadulterated smut, no uncle makes more hot, raw, steamy pornography than good old Uncle Sam. According to Family Safe Media, the U.S. produces more of this than Brazil, Holland, and even the Czech Republic. The United States is home, according to this, to 244,661,900 pornography sites. Evangelicalism has produced its own version of consumer culture in the prosperity gospel, uh, with this heresy that following Christ entails health, wealth, faith, and victory. Not surprisingly, Donald Trump has found allies among proponents of the prosperity gospel, and as John Fay observes in his book, Believe Me, the evangelical road to Donald Trump. Donald Trump and the prosperity gospel are a perfect match. Mirror number one, you get the leaders you deserve. Mirror number two, hoarding. You get the diseases of your age. According to the Oxford Handbook of Hoarding and Acquiring, Little recorded evidence for pathological hoarding exists prior to the 20th century. This is not to say that it did not exist before the 20th century, but is now recognized as a disease of our age. If you have visited the house of a hoarder or if you have suffered from hoarding, you will know how desperately unattractive this behavior it is. And it's not confined, as you might expect, to the poor. I don't know if any of you have ever been into the house of a hoarder. I once was in uh, traveling and I was set to stay at the house of a professor at a very distinguished university. And uh, he, it was a double story house and he'd managed to clear a little bit of, of a place in the room and a little bit of place in the kitchen so I could make coffee. Everywhere else was just absolutely packed with goods. And then I've also been into to other places where there, there's nowhere to sit. You know, some people hoard animals. They hoard all sorts of things. 
And uh, just as our leaders hold up a parable for us, so I'm not, if, you're, if you happen to struggle with hoarding, I'm not going after you. And see, this is the danger with us. We, some of us despise Donald Trump. Some of us despise hoarders. We think, how awful. What I'm suggesting to you is they mirrors. They're the diseases of our age. They're the leaders of our age. They mirror the culture. It takes a certain culture to produce these kinds of leaders and pathologies. Prior to this parable, Jesus had been teaching the crowds about the cost that following him will involve. Now, do you get that? So Jesus is instructing this crowd on, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to take up the cross. But there's an American in the audience. And, of course, he's not terribly interested in the cross. He has other things on his mind. So as soon as there's a gap and he can get his question in, he shouts out, not, Lord, how do I take up my cross? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. All that talk about the cost of publicly acknowledging Jesus is of little interest to him, and once he gets an opportunity, he cuts to the chase. In the process, he executes a classic Freudian slip, revealing his true values. Yes, it's great being part of the church, but what I really need is more, more money, more things, just more. And you know, this is the culture we now swim in. And uh, I think Wendell Berry and other very wise uh, commentators on our culture would alert us to the fact that none of us have escaped this. So if you sit here feeling judgmental against other people, you know, it just uh, the mirror is designed for us to have a close look at ourselves. The mall, that consumer emporium, has become our favorite form of entertainment. If bored or restless, you know, go shopping. Shopping, getting more things, has come to define us so that our lives would be meaningless without endless possibilities to shop now available ad infinitum online. Now, in conclusion, what is so wrong with this? Possessions in themselves, of course, are not evil. To hold that the materiality of our world is evil is not Christian, but an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, which taught that the materiality, the body, possessions, the material world is evil and you need to try and escape it and ascend to God as pure spirit. That is a heresy. We believe, as we will soon confess, in the resurrection of the body and the soul in holistic redemption. The materiality of the world is good and in of, of themselves possessions are a good gift from God. Unlike the rich man, we might ask, how does it come about that a field produces an abundant harvest? If only he'd asked that. We do not produce the rain, the soil, the crop. These are the glorious mysteries of the creation and are part of God's good gift to us. But what we do as sinners is to make life about the gifts rather than about the giver. And that's the catastrophic turn. It's what sinful human beings, we are just experts in this area. You know, we just love the gifts so much that we forget the giver and we absolutize the gifts. 
and C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, saying, once that person you're targeting makes the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your target. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he or she is pursuing. Jesus identifies four potential problems with the approach of the rich man. And I'll just take you through these four. Verse 15. He equates life with an abundance of possessions. I will be happy only if I have the latest iPhone. If we buy our third house. If I can live the American dream like the musicians and rock stars of our day. It's a terrible mistake to equate life with an abundance. Secondly, this man fails to take death into account. You know, maybe it's, uh, it's the challenge of getting a bit older, but uh, it, it really does intrigue me that in a hundred years, there's probably not, they think now the first person has been born who will live to 150. And maybe that's someone here, I don't know. But it, in all likelihood, in a hundred years, not one of us will, will be here. Not one of us. So it's a very, you know, extraordinary thing. Harrisonburg will probably continue. Church of the Incarnation, we hope, will be flourishing. But not one of us will be here. It fails to take death into account. Thirdly, his life is thoroughly self-centered. He welcomes the gift of an abundant harvest, but turns it all back onto himself. And then in verse 21, most tellingly, although everything he has comes from God, he never stops to acknowledge the source. And in the words of this text, he is not rich towards God. God is rich towards him, but he is unable to return the compliment. And here, I think, is the key to a Christian approach to wealth. Be rich towards God. This is not to suggest that we should be stupid. So please don't go home and sell your house and then come knocking at Aubrey's door while I'm visiting. Wait till I've gone to come, and, to come and tell him that you're now homeless and you need to be accommodated in the flat where I'm living. I don't want you in there with me. Some, like the disciples, if you have a look at verse 33, and th this is a theme that I think we do need to unpack. Some, like the disciples, are called to radical poverty in the service of Christ. There is a place for the renunciation of possessions almost completely. And Protestant evangelicals have lost that. But it's a very strong biblical motif, and you find it more in certain Roman Catholic circles and monastic circles. But we do well to recover a simple lifestyle, living according to our needs and not according to our desires and the norms of our culture. When abundance comes our way, be rich towards God, be generous and wise and giving to the needs of others far less fortunate than ourselves. And you know the irony of this is, so this is a very tough message to bring to you, but it's actually good news. 
it's no fun being locked in an iron cage. You know, and uh, ironically and wonderfully, such an approach frees us to enjoy our possessions for what they are, gifts from God and part, but by no means all, of life.